Well, we're going to talk about one of the hottest topics around on this episode of MSU today, that being artificial intelligence. We're going to do that with two esteemed Michigan State University researchers. Bill Hart Davidson is the Associate Dean of Graduate Studies in the College of Arts and Letters and a senior researcher at WIDE. Anjana Susarla is the Omira Saxena Professor of Responsible AI in our Broad College of Business. Great to have you both here to talk about this with us today. Thank you, Russ. Thank you, Russ. What is artificial intelligence? Well, I think artificial intelligence, now there's uh, newer definitions posed by United Nations. I can't uh, remember top of my head. But I think any use of automated systems to make decisions or you know, any use of sort of technology to automate what people have done, intelligently or otherwise, can be referred to as AI. Yeah, and we are also seeing just as a cultural phenomenon, AI is now a mega trend. Uh, it is a, a companion word or an umbrella term for lots of computer functions that we've been talking about for several years, everything from big data, machine learning. And in the last year or so since the release of ChatGPT about a year ago, everyone is lumping it together and calling it AI. Yeah. And so that's why if you're hearing the word more and more, that megatrend is really responsible yeah. for it. And I think the, the megatrend is really a convergence of multiple things. One is we use smartphones, uh, the Internet of Things, sensors, so many different ways. There's like digital traces of data being collected from each of us. Everything we do is digitized. And then we also have this humongous computing infrastructure on the cloud, et cetera. And we also have these powerful machine learning and other predictive algorithms that are kind of mining all these patterns of uh, human behavior. So I think that's why we just, it's so ubiquitous in today's world. And tell me each, before we go on any further, your particular interest in, in research areas. It's obviously a large field. Anjana, what are you particularly interested in? Well, I study social media, and especially I study the use of social media for healthcare. And the other piece of my work is responsible artificial intelligence. And Bill, you, your writing is your main thing, but you've sort of fallen into this, right? Yeah, this is a writing technology, as we know, and people are now using things like ChatGPT to help them with writing tasks. And that's been the focus of my career is how people use writing technology in the service of the sort of day-to-day -day writing that they do, whether they're healthcare providers or business people. There's always a tool involved, and that tool changes the dynamics of how we communicate. And that those dynamics have been my research focus for my career. And so what's good about AI and what concerns you about AI? Well, it certainly makes our lives more, um, I guess, more manageable. And there is tremendous consumer welfare, if you think about it in that way, that, uh, you know, the, the Amazons of the world with all their predictive uh, analytics, they've certainly made certain, some things easier Similarly, I think social media has some positives in terms of connecting people each other in keeping us informed on a sort of minute-by-minute -minute basis almost. And what concerns is just, as I said, the ubiquity of artificial intelligence. And it's almost so easy to distort it for in so many different ways, whether it's deep fakes, whether it's um, 
all these bad people sort of using social media to recruit folks to their side or you know there's so many different unanticipated consequences uh, biased algorithms biased decision making etc i'll pick up on that last idea there there's a focus now on a couple of disruptive problems that that come along with this latest group of technologies which are driven by large language models and that is they're trained on the language that was available to them at the time language on the internet and the quality of that information determines the quality of the output of the algorithm and so where there is bias in the training material that bias could be reproduced or even amplified in the results and so that's why we get some new terms in our lives for describing what the, what these um, tools do. We've heard that they hallucinate. You might have heard that, um, meaning they make up facts because they are plausible strings of words that exist in the training material, but they don't correspond with what we know to be true. And so they sound plausible. That's what makes them a a hallucination, but they're not correct. So if you asked it, Russ, to write a biography of you, it might get a lot of the details right, but it also might just make something up, like where you went to school. <laughs> that actually happened to me. Well, someone I know went to ChatGPT and said, write a bio for Anjana Susarla, and ChatGPT made up stuff about, some things were plausible, some others, like the colleges I went to, etc. Yeah, I had a colleague of mine who um, it made up a hobby for him. It said he liked to play guitar in local clubs. And he's like, I do? I'm like, well, maybe you have a life you didn't realize. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what about particularly the impact on higher education that's evolving since we're here at MSU? What are your thoughts there? So there are two things that I uh, concern me. One is, I think, what are skills that are important moving ahead? Because I think, you know, if we start from Industrial Revolution onwards, we've been in this kind of a, what we call a skill-biased technological change. There is a premium to sort of higher skills. There's some sort of automation or, you know, substitution types of effects. But how will that affect our jobs in future? Is this going to be some white-collar jobs will be disrupted? Are we training our students to work with AI? So I think those two things concern me. And of course, the thing that Bill and I've been talking about, all the biases, the amplification of biases that exist in the training data. So are we also adequately teaching these kinds of concepts in the classroom? Yeah, you might get false information out and um, folks could start you know, treating that as um, a valid result. And then we have some disinformation or misinformation to counter. Uh, another issue, because of the speed, I think, that these new large language model technologies were introduced, we weren't giving a lot, uh, given a lot of warning. The immediate concern in higher ed and in K-12 was that students might use them to cheat. We've done a few of these together, and I think our focus is slightly different in that there is a legitimate concern where some of the tasks that we use to assess student learning are now easy to fool if we're using something like AI. A short answer quiz question, for example, in a science class 
is going to be very, very easy to, to ask ChatGPT for an answer and get a pretty good response, an accurate, clear response back. And so a lot of that has caused, I wouldn't say panic, but uh, there's been a lot of activity in the last year to re-engineer our curriculum so that we have more authentic ways available to us to make sure students are learning what they need to learn and that we can assess it in ways that have integrity. I think what also concerns me is a little bit of how do we reward people for painstakingly accumulating knowledge when it's almost like you could just go to chat GPT and get the same answer as superficially similar to you know person who has spent years learning that domain and having some depth of knowledge so those are bigger questions mm -hmm. for what does expertise mean in today's world and also the intellectual uh, capital or you know intellectual property though that's mm -hmm. huge area evolving but i think it concerns me that if let's say you move from one one job to another job or one function to another, you acquire a sort of set of way of thinking about things. Can it be so easily automated with these large language models or at least superficially appears like you can replace a lawyer with training? So I think that's sort of yeah, very I, concerning. One that I think a lot of people can relate to is uh, an idea that goes along with how we learn over time and especially how we become more expert in a particular area is we do it through repetition and practice of writing or in the arts of drafting. And we, we, of course, now can ask AI to make images for us as well. What these AI tools give us is the ability to produce a pretty good first draft yep. right out of the gate with just a simple prompt. And so the hours that we might have spent practicing putting a draft together will now not be po necessary in a lot of cases, and especially where people are writing on the job, not necessarily for uh, a learning situation. So as a teacher, I might still ask my students to do it the old-fashioned way for the practice because writing is a good way to practice and, and it still has that value. But on the job, it's plausible that more and more people will get their first draft from the machine and they'll begin at the review and revision stage. And so I think as you were saying that the concern there is will what will be the accumulative effect of that change in practice? We're, we're, we don't know quite how that will play out. Yeah, I think one you know, immediate prediction I can offer is people who do content writing now, some of that can be easily maybe outsourced to chat GPT or at least the first draft. And similarly, I do wonder about just our way of communicating our expertise or our credentials. When so much is automated, the process of resume building is automated. The process of resume screening is automated. So you have basically, a, you're in a world where an algorithm is evaluating outputs of another algorithm. Are we preparing our students for this completely algorithmically driven world? And could this just lead to a, for lack of a better word, dumber society? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, those predictions less informed been, or. I have to say, you know, people said that about Google many years yeah. ago. So, uh, twenty years ago, people said Google will make yeah. us dumber. So. They said it about television. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, I think there's 
there are always fears about when our media and information consumption and production practices change. There are always concerns about where we will adapt and how we will adapt. Will there be a loss of something? I think there's arguably a loss. Um, in technological terms, I have a phone in my pocket and I know nobody's phone number, but it remembers it for me. And so if I'm ever pressed to list off someone's phone number, I might know one. Now, back in the day, I, I knew a lot of my right, friends' phone right, numbers, right? right? We could argue about whether or not that's a net benefit or not, but we call those affordances and disaffordances. And I think a conversation about those is going to need to be part of any conversation we have about preparing people professional for professional life. What, what are the skills that you really can't do without? So there's actually a fascinating study that was done many years ago. And I think uh, in London, if you want to be a cabbie, that's like a you know institution in the in Britain, taxi drivers. The streets are very very convoluted, so there's uh, a very specific exam which calls for a lot of spatial memory. You have to really remember, and the MRI studies showed that uh, the people who were London cab drivers actually had highly developed areas in their you know prefrontal cortex that deal with all the spatial reasoning. Now, what happens with GPS and Ubers and, <laughs> uh, you know, is there sort of a before and after? I think those are the kind of questions. Would we need newer skills? Because we do need to be very good at the process in which we design prompts with, uh, let's say, artificial intelligence. But it's a fair question of asking, you know, we have to ask, what does it mean when certain things can be commoditized? And we can have AI offering at least plausible or... Uh, I would say at least a simulacrum of uh, cognition or thought. And that's something fundamentally different. Because isn't that we were talking before about uh, when is AI a threat and when is it a new job skill and sort of more about the labor disruption it may be causing. I think the immediate labor effects that we're seeing now are not replacement, but they are shifting of expectations, how much work you can do in a given time with or without AI. Mm. Because these are monetized services, almost uniformly now, there are no government-sponsored models that you can access for free, and there are no yet, at least, uh, open-source mm. initiatives that rival the big, the big ones. There will be some concerns, I think, over time about who can pay for access as a way to boost productivity. So I think the immediate labor disruptions we're going to see is, well, if I use AI, I can get this much done, and I can outcompete others who are not or are not able to access it. So we may have some digital divide, hmm. a new kind of digital divide effect. I think there's a new kind of digital divide for sure, but I also think that it's not necessarily iniquitous in the sense that I remember a New York Times article recently. Uh, it was about the college application essay, and they interviewed deans of some several, you know, very good institutions. Uh, and the deans, ex a few of them, expressed concerns that the essays will be tailored with, uh, you know, Chat GPT, etc. But if you look at college admission process, the affluent students have been able to hire, 
helpers or you know some kind of people to help them with this application process so one way or the other people did have an advantage and so i think that maybe it's possible to use some of these tools in a manner that promotes equity right like public libraries and others can make some investment in offering maybe these services even offering access to paid uh, chat gpt versions etc and lower income students can go and access those services there so i think there's a lot of questions that we have to grapple with obviously as a society and i think you said this is the first time though ai is threatening white collar jobs is that right yeah uh if not the first time it's certainly the first widespread yeah. instance that we see if we think about previous situations where automation was threatening the labor force most of that automation was in things like manufacturing where robots are in factories doing assembly work that was previously done by a person but with these generative ai tools now we see for the first time many classes of of white collar workers knowledge workers will also be subject to some disruption from automation and perhaps the first example we saw play out in a labor context was the writer strike in hollywood this summer mm-hmm. what i would like to say is that you know white collar disruption the disruption of white collar jobs has also been there for some time if you look at financial markets a lot of the trading is actually done by algorithms but it's just that these things didn't really seep into the public consciousness people didn't quite realize how their jobs are affected by ai whereas that is really sunken now and we saw that with of course like bill said the hollywood uh, writer strike and suddenly people are also the actors are also wondering about you know can you create a likeness of me using generative ai and i think this again points to the role of ai both in i think the knowledge production or content creation but also the other side of it which is what shows we watch or what we do is also in a sense ai algorithms are sorting or screening it for us so i think we are seeing the dual side of ai on our daily lives yeah. so now recently president biden and the mm-hmm. white house issued some guidelines on ai mm-hmm. what did they propose what are they trying to do what will work what what falls short yeah this is a 150 page executive order so it was quite sweeping in the aims and objectives that they were trying to address but i think one aspect is that these very large models called foundation models they want to put in a bit more transparency around how they are built and developed and especially the areas where there may be security risks or risks to the general public they want a more communication and what's called red teaming the process where you communicate about the flaws and so forth so that's one guardrail uh they've also proposed that there should be an ai safety board which is uh, overseen by the national institute of standards and technology so it remains to be seen how all these would work i think the third piece is the enforcement part of it which the department of commerce and department of justice and federal trade commission and other uh federal agencies have been i think given more latitude in how they interpret and enforce these algorithmic risks and some of the algorithmic biases if 
if as it were yeah i'll add just some commentary because anjana by the way is an expert on that executive order and has produced a really great summary of it and she's right it's it covers so many different segments in part because and here's my my comment is um we're playing catch up on yep. the regulatory and rulemaking space in this technology if we think about maybe three other disruptive communication technologies we've seen at least in my lifetime the internet the world wide web or http and then mobile technology all of those were born to some degree within uh, a government or public sector place where they were subject to at least some regulatory reasoning as they were being created that's not the case with with these latest group of generative AI tools, they were born almost entirely in a commercial space. And they're not, they haven't been subject in terms of what they can do and who's developing which features to any regulatory pressure just yet. They're all just competing to try to be the coolest, most functional one that attracts the most users. And as a result of that, there are big questions about inviting these tools into our institutional spaces where we are regulated. Yep. So a great example for um, for higher ed is we can't put student records into these tools because we don't know what happens to that data after. And we have a duty of care and privacy to protecting the, the student's information. So there are no, we call those enterprise versions of these services that respect the regulatory rules we already have to play by and so as a result whole segments of the market for these tools are closed you can't put health records and you can't put education records in them so there are some i would say incentives on both sides to get to regulatory friendly versions would you say that i actually am i think the earlier part of your comment is really on this hits the nail on the head which is all these other technologies were developed very much in the public sphere. Whereas with chat GPT and I mean the open AI, there's sort of in the not only do these companies they've developed the software or they've developed these predictive algorithms, but it's like the discourse, the the way in which we are thinking about these is been also, I would say, in some sense the we are almost nudged into thinking in a certain direction by these technology companies. And we really need to ask in the public interest more questions. Because it's like if someone is interviewing on television or some newspaper, the people they'll talk to will be the open AI folks. So they've developed it and they'll say, oh, this is so great because, or they would say stuff like, you know, this is artificial general intelligence. OpenAI now has some body which will decide when something is artificial general intelligence. In my opinion, we are nowhere near artificial general intelligence. But so these are questions that we have to ask. And similarly, like what Bill said, if you're using these technologies in education, if you're using them in healthcare, they need a lot more guardrails and how do we bring them into enterprises? How do we bring them into reg heavily regulated settings? And how does this kind of maybe accentuate some maybe pre-existing divides or disparities or, you know, there were all these practices in the past that are not so great in 
terms of educational inequities, etc. Yeah. You know, we talked earlier about how we're all hearing so much about AI now coming from all different directions. I wonder if you have some facts about it you'd like to reinforce and maybe some myths to dispel for people. I think the myth I would dispel would be uh, the sort of hype about, you know, uh, self-driving cars are already here. They are not, you know. Uh, some other myths that we should dispel is we are not really in the arena where chat GPT or any others would just um, have like a general purpose, artificial general intelligence. So I think we need more algorithmic literacy. The maybe average person doesn't really understand how much algorithms are sort of steering us in different directions, whether we use Amazon or whether we're watching Netflix or uh, even the educational software companies, a lot of things are algorithmically designed to maximize engagement. And so if you're asking your child to, I don't know, use something like a prodigy educational system, what are the algorithms that went into those? We are not asking, I think, all these questions. So really, it's been a more a part of our life than we've realized yeah. then, maybe. Yeah, um, I think that would be, uh, to follow up on that idea, we have seen the development of artificial intelligence on the analytic side for quite some time. Um, and those technologies are already among us. So, And we are seeing a more gradual integration of those. If you have a car now, for example, that will nudge you back onto the road a little bit, mm -hmm. it gives you some steering wheel haptic feedback mm -hmm. if you go over the yellow line or the white line. That was trained with a, a machine learning mm -hmm. algorithm for, for visual uh, computer vision. And it also got integrated into our feature set of cars in a very measured way. And that's because the automobile industry, the highways, are all very regulated, and so mm -hmm. there were this, there's this discourse around what is what is the appropriate way. Okay, we can't go all the way autonomous driving, but here's a baby step. We're still trying to figure out what those baby steps are with generative AI, um, which is kind of a fascinating moment to yeah. be in. And and again, I think we're playing catch up just a little bit. Yeah. Um, maybe not a little bit. We're really playing catch. Yeah, yeah, maybe a lot. Well, 150-page executive <laughs> yeah. order is a is a signal, right? Yeah, right. Um, and Bill, you mentioned ChatGPT came out about a year ago. What's changed since then? And as oh, you wow. both look forward, what are you like, okay, cool, and what are you still kind of worried about? So I'll give you some statistics, right? Like all these latest, like GPT 3.5, which is the, you know sort of foundation for these Every day you see some research paper which is like uh, Chad GPT can uh, score like 95% uh, on some US MLE. Yeah, yeah on the LSAT. On the LSAT. Yeah. It can take bar exam. It can do so many things. So again, I think that's about the, the fact that so much of the knowledge that we carry in our heads, because it's been digitized and you can program this kind of prediction engine to... is somewhat simulate an approximation of how people will reason through things. So are we, have we really thought about what this is going to mean for a lot of things we do? And I think, you know, one thing we haven't yet, maybe in, in the immediate like aftermath, this uh, so much of AI generated content now, 
And uh, yesterday I saw an announcement that YouTube will require moving forward that content that's created by AI should be labeled as an AI-generated content. Yeah, that's that's a great segue to the one I was going to add here, Russ, which is right now, especially with the large language models, they're uh, about as transparent to us when we use them as we can ever expect them to be when in terms of knowing, oh, I'm using ChatGPT. The next generation of these tools is going to be embedded into other things that we use every day. So just like the example I gave with your steering wheel, folks might not realize when they get into their car that they're using artificial intelligence. I think that will be the case with our writing environments, mm -hmm. our writing tools. Things like Google Docs and Microsoft Word will have these tools built in now. And more and more, our devices themselves will have access to a large language model. So don't be surprised if the sensors in your car connect to a LLM and send you an email from your car that says, here's all the things that are wrong with me. Take me to the dealer. Um, yeah, because it's, it's surprising. This is yeah, completely plausible, plausible, right? Yes. And so here's what I think that means. And, and, and Yana talked about this earlier. I think we're going to need a new set of critical sensibilities to approach uh, the world, like a, being a, like we talk about being a critical consumer. We'll learn to ask, okay, what language model is working here, and what other layers of training have been added for safety and security and privacy, all of which might not be in the model, the language model itself, but are part of the tool that we use. And none of those questions are very familiar. They were, they're all new since last year to say, what's the LLM and what's the wrapper? Where are the deep learning layers? Those are new questions that even those of us who've, who kind of understand those terms have had to kind of cultivate. So introducing those to the broader public and to our students is going to be important, I think, in the next few years. Yeah, so I think that's the question of algorithmic literacy, right? Understanding how these algorithms are informing different aspects of our life and decision making. But I think the other thing that also I um, wonder or think about is are the process by which we credential individuals. What are the markers of uh, credibility? Increasingly, it's also some algorithmically assigned credibility score. Because, you know, 50 years ago, if you wanted a plumber or doctor, you probably looked in the yellow pages, which was a directory and it listed some people locally. Now, where do you find people? Sometimes maybe we go to Google Maps, but even that is becoming less important. The younger generation of folks are finding, I don't know, who to, uh, like even restaurant recommendations they're getting from TikTok or, you know, wherever else. How does TikTok algorithm decide who is the who sees what? person, mm. who sees what? And I think we need more understanding. And not only we need more understanding, I think the process of this credentialing algorithmic curation, that we need a new vocabulary almost. Well, Anjana and Bill really appreciate getting us up to speed on artificial intelligence a bit. Well, that's Bill Hart Davidson. He's the Associate Dean of Graduate Studies in the College of Arts and Letters and a senior researcher at WIDE. And what is WIDE again, Bill? Writing, Information, and Digital Experience. Beautiful. Research Center. And Anjana Susarla is the Omira Saxena Professor of Responsible AI in our Eli Broad College of Business. 
And I'm Russ White. This is MSU Today.